So just to keep in the flow of what Paul has been writing here in 1 Thessalonians, I've been, I've been referring to him as Parent Paul in my notes because he's just got this parent vibe going. And, and this week really touches on this idea that parenting, and think about this, if you're not a parent, then you can recognize this from your own life, is that parenting is this sort of long series of smaller goodbyes that builds toward this one sort of big goodbye, right? So, for instance, kindergarten, first day of kindergarten is kind of a big deal because you're saying goodbye to your kiddo and off they go, and that's sort of a smaller goodbye that preps you for something else. A couple days ago, I dropped off my daughter at a friend's house, and I was teasing her. I said, are you going off to college? Because she had all this gear. She was going to a volleyball tournament this weekend to a, with, a, with a friend. And it kind of just made me think, like, here's my freshman daughter that I'm sending off for two days, right, away from me. And that's a preparation for a day that's coming when she'll either go off to college or join the military. That's not on the radar yet, but you never know. Or take an apprenticeship with Greenpeace. I mean, who knows what she's going to do, right? But she is going to leave the nest at some point. And so it's not so much a matter of the location. They could move across town, or they could be getting kicked out of the house, or they could be going to school abroad, right? But there's a moment when you realize this is the big goodbye. Now, for some of you in our church, I'm realizing this as I watch too, we have to switch metaphors because they keep coming back, right? You thought it was this big goodbye, but they're like salmon. They keep like jumping. So I think the way to figure that one out is you just move and don't tell them where you've moved to and then they can't find their way home. No, I'm kidding. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the, the, the great goodbye is the great hello again a few months later, a few years later. But this is, you know, this is something that as a, as a college pastor for years, I got to interact with students who went away, but also with their parents who were left behind at church. And I kind of watched the, the joy of that moment, but also the anguish of that moment. And, and just the, the curiosity that parents have, the, the anguish going, how are they doing? How are they doing spiritually? Are they going to stand strong in the face of temptation? Are they going to make good friends? Are they going to find a good church? Do they even miss us? Right? I mean, these are the things that parents kind of wrestle with as their kids go away and move away. And when I read this passage and studied this passage this week, there it is in a nutshell, kind of what's going on with Paul. Here's sort of the cliff notes of this morning, okay? We're going to be looking uh, at chapter 3. We're starting into chapter 3, and here it is. Paul is away from his children in the Lord, okay? It says that he was bereft of them. Almost he's been orphaned from them. He's been ripped away from them. And he is so distraught, wondering how are they doing, that he sends Timothy. And he gets a first-hand report that they're doing dynamite. And he says, essentially, I've got this new lease on life. I'm so excited to hear that they're doing so well. You can put it this way. The good news, the gospel, was producing in them really, really good news for him. The good news being that their faith and their love was alive and well. Here's the bonus. The bonus was he got first-hand report that they missed him, that they felt warmly toward their Christian leaders. Remember, this was sort of under threat because they had been bombarded by lies, not unlike kids going away to, to college. Sometimes you go away to a secular university, even some Christian universities, and you are bombarded with things like this. You are just a product of your environment. You believe this way, not because it's true or because it's foundational, but because you've been sort of brainwashed and indoctrinated in these truths. Let us tell you how to learn the right way. That's some of what's going on at university levels right now. 
And so parents rightfully should wonder, is there, a, is there a warmth back toward us or not? And Paul was wondering that same thing. There was opposition with these new Christians saying, see, where's your leader now? He's abandoned you. Paul hadn't abandoned them. He was writing this letter, remember, to reassure them of why he wasn't present. There's sort of a nutshell Cliff Notes version. Look at verse 6. We'll read the whole passage momentarily, but look at verse 6. The great news centers on these two words, faith and love, that your faith and your love are going well. Think about how much of your week is filled up with small talk, right? What is small talk about? Small talk is how's the weather, how are you doing, how's the health, how are the kids, how's the dog, how's the sale of the home, how's the job, how are your grades? Ultimately, that's small talk. Much of what you talk about won't be remembered a week from now or two weeks from now. But there's also big talk, right? For a Christian, what, what I want to know and the, the deepest joy that I find is when I ask someone, how are you doing? And we get through some of the small talk and then they say, let me tell you about my walk with God. Let me tell you about what God's been teaching me. To me, those, those are the big talk conversations. Those are the big themes that really light me up. I'm glad you got the job. I'm glad you got into school. I'm glad you got a girlfriend. But I'm thrilled. I'm overjoyed. Aren't you as well? When people you love are standing firm. When people you love are being faithful and turning to God in the midst of storms and not running away from God in the midst of storms. Man, that's what wells up real joy in us. Those are sort of the big talk moments. The clockwise uh, themes today. Uh, the biggest theme that we're going to look at is this one right here, to keep holding on. By the way, replaced with numbers on our clock face for this series are just these little pithy phrases that kind of are woven all through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And this morning, keep holding on is going to be this theme that's going to really run rampant here in chapter 3, but you'll see it's kind of through the whole thing. And then we'll, we'll get to pray all the time in just a little bit. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 for a moment. It says, Remembering before our God and Father, look at this, your work of faith, there's that word faith, and labor of love, there's the word love, your faith and love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what was causing deep joy. Um, flip over to, or, or look at our passage today, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of what? Your faith and your love. Turn your Bible to the right a few pages to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. This is the second letter he's writing to them, chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Do you see this theme of faith and love? Faith and love? Faith and love? I'm not sure there's a better summation of how someone is doing in the Christian walk than to say, my faith in God, my love for other people is increasing. That's how I'm doing. When we see evidence of that, when we hear that's what's going on in someone's life, man, that takes care of a lot of Christianity right there. 
That's sort of a good summation of how are you doing. How are you doing, brother? How are you doing, sister? Man, my faith and my love are increasing. I love how he says it uh, that, that we just that we just looked at in, in in chapter one of First Thessalonians. It's the work of faith and the labor of love. It doesn't mean it's coming easy, but it's increasing. Man, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in us, isn't it? it? Doesn't come natural for us to turn to God, to lean on God, to trust God. It comes natural for us to turn and trust in ourselves, trust in other people, trust on things that we can see. Doesn't come natural for us to put other people's needs ahead of our own, to genuinely consider them as more important than ourselves, to really love people and love them sacrificially. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in a person. That ought to cause great joy in you. That someone's faith and love is increasing. What Paul's seeing is he's seeing evidence that these new believers are established in their faith. He's seeing hard evidence of that, and that's given him, in essence, a new lease on life. Quick review. Last week, five clear steps, not five easy steps, but five clear steps of how to grow up in God, right? These are all things that are a pattern for us. We can do these kinds of things. And then we ended last week with this, the idea that we ought to keep going in these. Sort of a Western mindset of information is a little bit like the evening news where we receive something, we go, okay, I got it, and then we move on, right? And, and the Bible says, man, it's not just that you read this and give mental assent to go, huh, that's true, I believe that, but that we keep going in that. If you look at sort of the flow of idea, we're now in chapter 3. Chapters and verses are sort of arbitrary markers. Someone put that on a long time after Paul wrote the letter. But it's sort of trying to follow break of idea and sort of a, sh- a shift in, in theme and topic. And if you were to look at one way to break down First Thessalonians is say this. Chapter 1, the church is born. How is a Christian born? How are new believers born? How is a church born? Chapter 2 is all about nurturing them. Remember, we were gentle among you. We were affectionate like a mom. And we were also exhorting you and encouraging you and cheering you on uh, like a dad. We were parents to you. We were nurturing you. Now in chapter 3, it's all about establishing believers. I've sort of been thinking a lot about the word established today or this, this week, just kind of chewing on it and thinking about it. And, and um, it's kind of curious how we use the term because... If you see something that was established, usually it's talking about, it shows on the billboard, it shows on the t-shirt, established, and then the year that it was started, right? And often the way that we talk about it is that we say, well, something is established, not necessarily from the moment it was begun, but it really was established sometime after that. Because think of how many businesses, think about how many uh, families, right, don't last from, from the starting point. And here's the reason for it, the obvious reason. There's two meanings to the word established, right? Established can mean forming together and starting organizing. So it's the starting point. But established uh, also carries with it the idea of being firm and permanent. It's established. It's stable. So this morning, uh, as we think about, um, as we think about how do how is Paul establishing new believers? Uh, we're going to look at this, this whole notion of something that we understand with, with sort of all living things, and that is this. 
All living things, it's great that they're born, it's great that they're nurtured, but if they're not established, it doesn't really matter because it will die, right? Um, this is a, a little sort of Charlie Brown tree that caught my attention this week as I was chewing on this and thinking about this, and it's in some of your neighborhoods. You drive by this tree all the time. Maybe you don't even notice it, but you might notice it on the way home from church today. Now you're going to go looking for this tree, aren't you? And I looked at this tree and I thought, wow, what is that blue rod doing there? What is that blue rod doing there? That's right. It's helping to establish that tree, right? Now, if you kind of shift the focus for a moment and you kind of, and you kind of walk, walk around the tree, um, you see another tree in the background. You see that tree in the background? A tree in the background, is that established? Absolutely. That's an established tree, right? Tree in the foreground is, is not yet established. That blue rod, it's not there for decoration, right? It's kind of ugly, actually. It kind of takes away from the nature. It's discipleship. That blue rod is discipleship. It's discipleship in sort of the early phases of someone's Christian walk. Now, I want to ask a question, and this is a, this is one of those real questions where I want real people to give me real answers back, okay? Sometimes preachers ask rhetorical questions and you're like, I don't know if I'm supposed to actually say it or not. This is a real one. I want you to think back to your own faith story for a moment, okay? Just think about, just think about those of you who are, who are Christians. You made a profession. Jesus is Lord. You've renounced your old way of living and you're, you're following Jesus now. I want you to think back on it and I want you to answer this question. How were you established? That is to say, how were you made stable? Now, um, I understand that no one's arrived yet, okay? So, so don't think that you need to be some shining beacon of a 50-year-old tree in the background and go, well, I guess I can't answer that. I'm just saying you're on stable footing. You're on stable ground. I know many of the faces in this room, okay? Um, so, so what were the circumstances? Who were the people? How did God create faith in you and, and cause you to become established? Let's hear it. Just for orderly sake, raise your hand so I can kind of identify you and talk. Go, Naomi. Community groups. Okay, God used community groups in your life. Yeah, Ruth, a faithful youth pastor. Okay, what did he do specifically? What's one thing that he did? Okay, by teaching and by his lifestyle. Awesome. Michelle. Okay, just, just walking with a more mature Christian and studying the scriptures. Yeah, Laura. If you didn't hear that, a sister who was annoying enough not to leave her alone, so kept pursuing you and, and coming after you. Yeah. So a mom just coming and keep giving you messages of truth from Scripture and from life. Awesome. Here's the second question that I want you to, to, to answer, and, and I hope I've got you thinking now about your own story. Even if you didn't share, you're kind of thinking, what were the circumstances? Who were those people that, that God brought into, into my life to establish me in the faith? Here's the second question that I want real answers from. How, how can you tell if you are established? Let me give you a quick story from Jesus, and I'll just kind of summarize it. But Jesus talks about this, this farmer who, who plants seeds, right? And the seeds fall on four different kinds of soils. Remember this? A little parable, story to teach. Um, some, of the, some of the seed falls on the path. He says it falls on the path, and what happens to that is the seed, the birds of the air come and they eat the seed. Some of the seeds fall on the rocky places. And what happens with that is there's no root to it. And so they wither and die. Third set of seeds falls amongst thorns, and, and the thorns grow up, and what do they do? They choke the life out of it, right? And then what's the fourth soil? It's good soil. 
What happens when seed is planted in good soil? It grows up and it produces harvest. It does what it's meant to do. So in, in looking at that story and thinking about the fact that three out of the four soils didn't get established, right? They were established in that they had a starting point, but they weren't established in that they took root and are still around today. Now, surely we can think of people in our own lives that aren't around today. So they, they had the appearance of being established. The seed went out just like, just like anyone else. They may have responded at the same event you did or in some of the same, around the same youth pastor, around some of the same circumstances, but they are not around today because they didn't get established. So, with sort of that parable as a backdrop, um, fire off some ideas to me of how you can tell if you are established in the faith. How about someone you love and you're caring about? How do you know if they're established in the faith? How about it? Okay, so if someone is turning to the Bible and they have questions, that's indication that, that they're established. Yeah, what else? Kind of going against the flow and, and living in a way that doesn't make sense apart from God. Jim? Fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, continued growth, if you didn't hear that. Yeah, how, how they act when, when they're tested, right? When hardships come. Jamie in the back. So everything that was just said can be said of individuals, and it can also be said of churches. Kind of think of churches, which, which just represent families. We're, we're little bodies, little families, little local gatherings that belong to, to the big C, capital C, church of, of God, right? And, um, and churches can sort of take on characteristics. So, so the text really is talking about Paul as a parent wanting to make sure that, that this flock, this congregation collectively is established. So we collectively can be persecuted, can have hard times, and can collectively turn to the word with our questions and the things we have, right? We can collectively trust. We can collectively display or not display the fruit of the Spirit. So I want you to think in those two sort of categories as we move forward. First Thessalonians chapter 3, first 10 verses. Here we go. Therefore... When we, there's that we language again, Paul's a part of a team. When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Do you hear sort of the parent Paul, kids off at college kind of a vibe going on there? 
Man, he's just gotten this great report, and he's so excited. Let me show you uh, just briefly all these different things that kind of reveal what's on Paul's mind. In verse 2, what was Timothy's mission? To establish and exhort. Verse 3, he was writing to ensure that no one be moved. Uh, verse 5, he learned about their faith. Um, he, he wanted to learn about their faith for fear that their efforts were useless, that maybe they were some of the bad soil that Jesus talked about. In verse 6, which we already looked at, there was great news of your faith and love. Verse 8, he has sort of this new lease on life. Now we really live. Why? Because you, new Christians, that I love so dearly and have invested in, are standing fast in the Lord. And verse 10, we long to not only see you face to face. Why do we long to see you face to face? To fill up what is lacking, to supply what is lacking in your faith. Do you see in this passage of Scripture, the overwhelming drumbeat, verse after verse after verse, as he longs for them not just to be born, not just to be nurtured, but to keep going, to be established. Parents always concern themselves with establishing their offspring. We talked last week about the ticking time clock in a parent's mind that is thinking of the great goodbye. When are they going to leave and be on their own and won't have us around? Parents always are concerned with establishing their offspring. It's so vital because we all know that persecution comes. Trials always come. It always gets difficult. So we want to prep those we love for that. And there is such a good model of what a church should measure wrapped up in these few verses. Didn't Jesus call us to go and make disciples? Of course he did. What is the measure of success for a disciple? Think about that for a minute. I don't want real answers now. Just think about it. That's a a difficult one, right? Maybe it's their holiness. Maybe it's their level of sacrifice. Maybe it's the knowledge that they have. Maybe it's the number of converts that they have over over a lifetime. I would venture to say that the most important measure of success for a disciple is that they're found faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. Paul, I have finished the race, right? What good is starting if we get disqualified partway through? What good is giving birth and nurturing if you give no thought to establishing? And they get wiped out the moment they step out of your household. Faithfulness is a great thing to measure. One of the things we're trying to measure as a church, we'll never know. We, we, we don't see the end from the beginning. We won't be there at the end of the age and, and, and be able to tell right now as we're tweaking things and praying and thinking about if we're establishing believers. But But this gives a great picture of some of the things that ought to really matter to a church. God desires disciples who are faithful, who grow and mature, and then are able to turn around and and grow and mature other disciples. And that they just remain faithful. That they finish the race. So I want to spend our time this morning answering this question. How does Paul establish the new believers? (coughs) This is a young church. It's a new church. It's in a very worldly city. How does Paul do it? As you think about this, you might be a church leader of some sort. 
You might have a, an official role here at NBC. And so you're thinking in those terms. You might be somebody who says, I don't really have a role in this, but I want you to get your head around this. How do I partner with what God is doing to establish new believers? How can I partner with NBC? What is my role in this? I want to back up and say this. Is the church Paul's idea? Yes or no? No. Did Paul die for the church? Yes or no? Does Paul supply what is lacking in the church supernaturally? Yes or no? No. Church is God's idea. So when we ask the question, what is Paul doing to establish the church? What we have to do is kind of pull back and go, actually, God's the one at work. God's the one who cares deeply that new people are established. Now, how does God accomplish it? He sends teams of people like Paul and like Timothy and like Silas and a host of unnamed people that go into places and serve people and love people enough to not let them go, to annoy them, to, to give them truth, to walk with them through difficulty, and to establish them. This is God's plan. This is how God establishes new believers. He raises up churches. He raises up church leaders, teams. So number one, here's what Paul decides to do. Paul decides to send Timothy, God working through Paul, Paul being given the responsibility and the freedom to make a decision. It was his call. So they send Timothy. Verse 1, it says, therefore, whenever you see therefore in the scriptures, you ought to back up and go, "What's what's it therefore? So therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens and send Timothy. What's he talking about? Well, you go back up and you read the last part of chapter 2. Paul was longing to see them again, right? He was longing to know, how are they How are they doing in this test? How did they fare? Are they okay? So he says, we sent Timothy. You remember that Paul wanted to get there, but Satan hindered him. We don't know the details of that. He didn't see fit to give us all the ghost story details about it that our minds want to fascinate on. He just said, look, we were hindered. The adversary puts roadblocks in our way. Our role is to overcome those in the power of Christ. But we were hindered from coming to see you. So Paul broke up the missionary team. He divided the limited resources. Uh, he was in this hostile city, a city hostile to the gospel. And he had, he had some trusted people around him. Trust isn't just built overnight. So he makes this decision. I'm willing to split up this missionary team. Why? Why would he do that? He did that. Because evidently in Paul's mind, strategy dictated that you split up the team. He must have thought it was better for what was needed going on at those Christians in Thessalonica that he said, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna break up the limited resource we have here and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna send you there because, because for a kingdom win, I think this is, I think this is the, the best route to go. Uh, sometimes nothing beats a personal touch. If you think about your own story, a youth pastor was mentioned, a, a sister was mentioned, a sister in Christ, a mom was mentioned. Uh, think about people that God sent into your life to help establish your faith. Man, there's just there's nothing that beats a personal touch, right? Um, I talk to this guy periodically at a coffee shop I go to sometimes, and he's often not able to go to church and. And, um, and I, I, I challenge him. I say, man, it's great that you listen to biblical teaching. I love that you read your Bible. There is nothing like a personal touch. 
There's nothing like just face-to-face. Michelle said it. Getting with an older believer, opening the Word of God, and studying together. Can you help me not only read the Word, but read my life and read how this intersects? Ah! And they go, yeah, let me show you some of this stuff. Remember, Paul, let me break this down into some bite-sized pieces that you can handle. Now you try it, right? Face-to-face. Flip over to Acts 17. Keep your finger here in 1 Thessalonians if that freaks you out. Um, But in Acts 17, what we get to see is is some of the history of what's going on here. Um, uh, In Acts 17, verses 5 to 9, we see the picture of, of what was going on with Paul and being torn away. Remember, it says that, that we, were, we were robbed of you. We were, we were essentially orphaned by you. We were ripped away from you. Verse 5, it says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. This was Paul and his missionary team. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then verse 10 says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Berea is 40 miles to the west. They slip away at night. When you kind of get into the store and you keep reading what happens there, it's kind of fascinating because there's a sort of different temptation that would be faced with, with this leadership team. It says, when they went to Berea, you remember the Bereans, right? It says the Bereans were more noble than who? The Thessalonians. The same people he was just teaching in, he goes 40 miles away so that he can keep his life and spread the gospel there also. And it says that they received eagerly the word of God. Now, here's what's kind of fascinating that I got this, this week is this. Doesn't it back up Paul's story that we loved you, not, not only enough just to give you the message, but we shared our very lives with you. You guys became really dear to us. And we were like a mother. We were like a father to you. It backs up their story because if they were just in it for position or some whatever thing they were getting out of it, the flattery, whatever goes on with that, Then when they moved on to the next city, the next place, and they were received warmly and welcomely, what does every teacher love? It's when their students are right there with them, engaged, putting into practice what's going on, asking questions back. Why? Because that means they're they're really thinking about it, right? Isn't that every teacher's desire? That's like the A-plus position. If you're teaching in a spot like that, man, that's... Why would you want to go anywhere else? And yet here he is in this place where he's being received. It's working. He's doing all his ministry. It's a thriving ministry. And a part of his head and heart are where? Back over here where it was really, really difficult. And there wasn't just explosive numbers of growth. No one was writing about this incredible church plant in Thessalonica. In fact, they were opposing it. So when you kind of read Acts, you actually go, man, there's, there's history to back up his words that say, look, we care about you deeply. If we didn't, man, we would just stick with the explosive growth thing going on in Berea and go like, well, we found our calling. Here's where we should kind of set up shop and really go. And we learned a lot from Thessalonica. God bless those poor people. Now let's get on with the new program, right? I love the picture of bonded lives here together. Here's what's curious. The mob follows them to 
Berea. Isn't that just like our problems? They follow us. I've known, I've known some friends, some close personal friends, who've left problems in a church and problem people in a church, and when they move states away, guess what happens? The same people worship there. The same problems are there. Different names. They look a little different, but you go, oh my goodness, it's that same person on the elder board that I was getting away from over here. They followed me here as well. And here's Paul. The mob follows them. And so that's a point. He actually slips off to Athens. Church leaders are a little bit like coaches or military commanders. They are required at times to make personnel decisions. They are required to think, what is strategically best for this location? But we're not alone. We're not isolated. There are other outposts around the Santa Clara County. There are other places around the world and, and country. And is there, a, is there a, a place that this person could be used better in somewhere else? Back to 1 Thessalonians, where he introduces who he is and what he's doing. He's a brother. He's a co-worker in the gospel. That's Paul saying, trust this guy. I'm putting my authority in this guy. This is a good guy. Trust him. Follow him. And he's sent to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. I received a phone call one day from a close personal friend, and he was a pastor in a different state. And he called me up, and he said, hey, I'm looking for um, a youth guy. Could you keep your ears open? And I said, okay, I'll do that. Give me a few more specifics. And when I hung up the phone, I started just thinking and praying. I love this brother. I love the work he was doing. I, I don't know any of the people. I never got to visit him in this church. I just began to pray and say, God, those are dear sheep up there that need a good youth pastor. Do you have anyone in mind? And I didn't like the answer that he gave me. You ever pray and not like the answer God gives you? So then you're like, let me try that again. I couldn't, get, I couldn't get someone's name out of my mind. And I thought, well, I don't even know if that even makes any sense. And I began to just realize, you know what? I have no idea. I don't know the details, circumstances of this. I'm just going to put forth what, what God seems to be putting on my heart. And I called this guy back, and I said, I've got a guy's name for you, but I want you to know. Um, sometimes, sometimes we play games, and we say, yeah, I've got someone for you. And it's called a blessed subtraction. That's sort of the Christianese way of saying, we've got this guy on our team that doesn't play nice in the sandbox with anyone else. We've been looking for a way to help him hear the call far, 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 far away from our ministry. And so, yeah, I've got someone, you know. I don't want to sound too eager, but he's great. Take him. I said, listen, this is not a blessed subtraction. I said, this is like me cutting off my right arm and FedExing it to you. I've been trained in ministry that every Paul should have a Timothy, meaning everyone doing ministry should always be pouring into someone else and training up. And there was a younger leader that my heart was knit to, and, and he was growing in the Lord, and, and he was ready for some next step kinds of things. And to me, that meant at our home church. I had big visions and plans. And so I just connected the dots. I'm not sovereign. I don't know what these things are. But I just said, let me give you guys, let me give you guys, get you in touch with each other. This guy ended up moving away from our ministry, which was very, very difficult. The things he was doing was, was really astounding. And he ends up moving away and, and leaving for the sake of the kingdom. Should we let him in on who it is, Ben? It was Ben. Uh, so this was Ben back at Valley Church, and he, he moved away. If you want more on that story, you can kind of hear how God took him on a journey up there. But, but this was me sending someone away that was very valuable to me. I cared very deeply for I had no idea we might ever work together again. 
but it was because of the fact that, that we, we work together and, and, and all of that. When I did that, I gave, I gave this kind of commendation. This is a brother. This is a co-worker in the gospel. Man, he, he's, he's going to do great things for you up there. Leadership development is just built into pastoring. If your church leaders, no matter where you go, if they don't have an eye to be giving ministry away and training up others and being okay with not being in the spotlight and being actually excited when other people are doing the doing, then something's a little bit broken. Go and read Ephesians. Ephesians tells us why God gives coaches, pastors, shepherds, he does it so we can train people up and equip people so that they can be doing ministry as well. So leadership development is, is built into this. When you look at, at Timothy, it's interesting because Acts chapter 16 shows he'd been faithfully serving in his church. You don't take a young person and immediately say, hey, go preach some sermons. You seem really dynamic. He was just serving faithfully in the background. He was probably helping Paul with some of the logistics of travel. Travel, it doesn't mean he had carried him through the TSA line because it was so long. He, it was like really challenging and he needed someone there with him, right? So he was probably doing some of the menial kinds of stuff, but he was faithfully serving. It's interesting because people often, when I got to Valley Church as a youth pastor, uh, the kids in the youth group, they wanted to keep doing this missions trip that was out there. It was kind of exotic and we wanted to go different places. And I invited them to say, I said, look, why don't we go to Los Gatos? Let's go serve in Las Gatos. There's a senior center there, and they could really use young people to come and just serve them and, and be a blessing to them. After that, let's go over um, to Camp Mamac in the Santa Cruz Mountains and serve kids from East Palo Alto and put on a camp there. What I did was I just said, let's start serving right here in sort of the menial stuff. Is it exciting to go to Las Gatos and do, do a missions trip? Not really. Santa Cruz Mountains, not that exotic. But the point was, let's be, let's be faithful in these small things. Then let's spend giant dimes and go to Zimbabwe and go to these different places. And, and then we took them to Mexico after that and some of that. But it was this idea of find yourself faithful in some little things. As just an interesting side note that we won't spend a lot of time on, go look in the Bible about Paul's relationship to a guy named John Mark. John Mark was another intern, so to speak, for Paul. And John Mark's live right next to Timothy's. And what happens with John Mark and Timothy is people are kind of coming, they're serving. Leaders are always kind of watching. Who's, who's got what gifts and who, who should be entrusted with what? God, what are you doing here? What's, what's the strategy? And it's, all, it's often really hard to know. When the going got tough, you know what John Mark did? He bailed. And if you read the scripture, it kind of ticked him off. Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't about that. He didn't like that. We don't know if he got homesick. We don't know if he got scared because it was kind of scary, persecution. We don't know if he didn't, didn't like Paul's preaching or Paul's leadership style. I mean, the reasons leaders split up in Christian ministry are as varied as, as the rest of the world, right? We don't know the reasons, but we know that they, that they parted ways. Now, what's interesting is God had a plan in that. A new ministry team was formed with John, Mark, and Silas, right? Later on, kind of the, the, the stories go on. But Paul sticks with Timothy, I want you to see this quote that is just simple. If church members would adopt new Christians, man, we talk about adoption a lot around here. Let's flip the meaning for a minute. Encourage them, teach them, and fellowship with them. There would be fewer spiritual casualties. 
less Charlie Brown trees that just go, right, and the storm comes and just, just knocks them over. The mature saints in the church must help younger Christians to grow in Christ. Kel, raise your hand for a minute. Jim, raise your hand for a minute. Uh, ben, raise your hand for a minute. In the room right now, these are the, these are the four pastors or elders that are, that are here at the church. If you are thinking in your mind that's, that's the church leadership's job, you're missing the scriptural mandate. And I'll take part of the blame of that if you think that. Come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, maybe I've not taught you well. This is family business, that the older, mature, walk with the younger. Don't wait for a slick program that's going to make that happen. Pray and say, God, give me an eye for who I need to sidle up next to. I want to be that, that little blue stick next to someone. It's not that impressive. It's not there for decoration. But, man, it's, it's steady and firm and true. And I know how to, how to tie that person to me and kind of just help them grow and, and nurture them along. You know, one of the things we talk about as a church is just what to keep score about. And when you think about Timothy, Timothy, if you score just attendance, Timothy was a great loss to the church, right? But if you score raising people up and sending them out to serve people, and actually consider other communities as more important than our own, then all of a sudden, the scorecard changes, right? And so attendance might look a little bit thinner, but you might really begin to celebrate to say, man, in the last year, in the last six months, in the last few weeks, these people have gone out from us on purpose to go and serve other people. I have a growing list at NBC. It's the people that used to attend here that for one reason or another no longer attend here and yet would consider themselves part of the church family. Many of them on the list don't live here anymore because it's expensive to live in the Silicon Valley. Amen? Amen. We should have a robust amen to that. <laughs> Come on. So they've, so they've moved away. But there are several others who have gone out from amongst us for the explicit purpose of going and serving other people. And so some of them are called out and named as official missionaries. Others of them aren't. But I began to just kind of chew on some of the the places that we have covered. We have San Francisco and Portland and Seattle and Montana and Kenya all covered uh, as, as places where people have gone for ministry. Now, they don't show up in our attendance. And we don't count them in our attendance, and we shouldn't. But it got me thinking, we're approaching our 10-year anniversary this November. What if 10 years from now, someone walks in, and they go, man, where are all the mature people at this church? You guys have been at this for 20 years now. Why aren't there just hosts of saints that are just super rock solid, that tree in the background? And we say, you know what? Praise God, they're all gone. They're all gone. God keeps calling them away from us which actually makes more room in the garden for newer, younger people to be trained up, and Lord willing, they'll depart from us at some point. Isn't that a cool vision for a church? Isn't that a great thing to keep score about? Is to say, praise God, we keep having goodbye parties for people we love dearly because they keep leaving to encourage and exhort others in love. I promise the next two things won't take as long as the first one. Next one that he did. 
He didn't just send a person. He taught them well. Paul had already taught them the word. He was reminding them of truth by this letter. In our passage today, he specifically says, look, I've already told you persecution is coming. I'm telling it to you again. Maybe you've forgotten. A lot of teaching is just reminding of truths. We're like, oh, yeah, that's right. I need to come back to that again and again and again until it just gets into the depths of my soul and I can instinctually go, that's right, this is supposed to happen. We were warned about this. Uh, we, have a, we have a record of how Paul taught this young church. Go back to Acts 17 for, for one quick moment. In Acts chapter 17, the first four verses are Paul teaching at Thessalonica. This very church we're talking about. Verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So what did he do? He reasoned. That means there's logic and debate and discussion going on. He opened the scriptures. What was Paul's Bible? Paul's Bible was the Old Testament, right? He preached the gospel from the Old Testament. We try to do that all the time from here. So he reasoned with them. He felt that the Bibles were worth opening and preaching. So that's what he opened. That's what we do here. It says that he was explaining. He was giving proofs. He was overcoming the objections. I'll tell you, part of what I do in here when I read a text is I go, God, what are the objections that are going to be on the minds of, of our people? What are the objections and the strongholds and the lies that are being believed that this scriptural truth has come to shatter and set free? I don't know what they are. I can't read your minds. But it's powerful to hear time and again, man, that really opened my eyes to this. I go, wow, that's an, that's an answer to prayer. That's something I pray all week long. I want to overcome the objections that might be on the, on the minds of people. And do you see that the gospel is at the center of what he taught? Hey, the, center, the central thing you need to know is this Jesus, he's the Christ. Let me give you the proofs for it over and over. Now, effective ministry of the word is varied. It appeals to the mind and the heart. It anticipates uh, uh, objections and, and prejudices that are there. He knew he had a Jewish audience. He was in a synagogue. He was in that realm. And he was patient in explaining difficult texts. Now, isn't there a guarantee in Scripture somewhere that says if you faithfully administer God's word and all of its varied thing, you'll have amazing results? No! Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. That's all we got. Some? Paul? I mean, Paul was just... One of the greatest minds in history. Preaching and pouring energy into it. And that was the result, is that some were persuaded. We see this uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2. You can just jot this down. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Paul wanting to establish them in the word. He says this. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold. Do you see that concern for being established? Stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Whether it's something that we taught you or something that we wrote to you, hold tight to those. Elsewhere, to the Ephesians. He wants people, Christians, established in the word because Ephesians 4.14, jot that down, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, 
by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul loved these people. He sent them a person. He taught them well. And finally, he prayed urgently for them. He says there's great joy as we enter God's presence. We're just overwhelmed with gratitude because of you. It's this dual nature of the word and prayer that establishes the new believer. It's word and prayer that that establishes a church. Real question, real answers. Ready? What happens if a church is all word, that is all teaching, but they're absolutely anemic in their prayer life? What kind of church does that produce? What kind of Christians does that produce? Think about it. All teaching, but very little to no prayer. What do you think? What kinds of disciples might that produce? Unbalanced, okay? To be sure. What else? Disconnected, okay? Weak. Pharisees. Puffed up. Yeah, I think you guys have nailed it. Uh, Christians that are that are filled up with knowledge and strive more and more to that. Uh, I think self-reliant Christians, right? Totally misunderstanding who's really at work in them. First Corinthians thirteen calls people obnoxious, like a clanging cymbal, if they sort of have all this all knowledge, right? But no love, no no outpouring. Living it out. How about all prayer, but, but anemic teaching? What kind of Christians, what kind of church would be produced if there's just, there's a ton of prayer? It is a house of prayer! But the Word of God's rarely referenced, certainly not opened and taught from in their gatherings. What kind of Christians? Shallow and easily swayed. I agree with that. What else? Heretics. Yeah, I mean, the, the way you get off track, the way you form a cult, is you're not well-grounded in the, in the teachings of Scripture. You don't hold fast to it. Huh? No fruit. No fruit. Yeah. And I think, I think what it might be is that plant that shoots up really quickly, right? Lots of enthusiasm. You light a match, how long does it last? Not long. There's a lot of passion, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm. And what happens sometimes in these churches is Christians roll through person after person after person, but there's no lasting fruit. There's no lasting depth. I want to invite the band up right now, and um, and as they do, I want to just say that I reached out to the Hintons who have gone out from us. They're a family that is very near and dear to us, and I went to their blog and tried to download a family picture, and the full-size version was like a postage stamp, and they looked digitized like they were um, being fuzzed out for security reasons. So I thought I'd just take a picture from Instagram of their girls. This is Claire and Ainsley and Cecily, their, their newest. And um, we often hear of Claire in our prayer times at bedtime, primarily Claire, because Claire was old enough still, and Ainsley was just being born when they left. But I got an email from from Kirk and uh, said, "Hey, how can we pray for you as a church family? We want to we want to do we want to close our time out by having a couple of you just lift up the Hintons 
and, and pray for them. And as he wrote, I thought, man, I, I hear built into this the longing and the prayer and the missing and their concern with getting established, not just their family in Nairobi, Kenya, um, but, but, um, but also the Christians there. Here's, here's what he says. He says, one of the best things going on right now is that we think we might have found a church home. We've been attending this church here on campus, and it's mostly expats, and it just seemed to be too easy to fall into going there. This new church was planted by an American-Canadian family and has been here for about 10 years. It's almost all Kenyan, and a good number of the attendees live in the slums. There's a sense of joy and authenticity there that we haven't felt since being at NBC. We're looking forward to getting more involved there as well as, as with the employment and educational programs the, they, they run. Another big deal is that we've been invited into several families' homes in the slums, which is quite an honor. One of the best parts is seeing our kids play with the kids who live around the homes that we've gone to. Most of the homes are around 100 to 200 square feet and don't always have running water, but these are actually some of the nicer places in the slums, not the tin shacks with dirt floors. He says, we've been through a lot the past couple of years, but in hindsight, we can see God has walked with us and has protected us in many ways, both obvious and not so obvious. We've developed some good friendships that build us up, and we're trying to do the same for others. Please say hi to everyone at NBC and tell them that we miss them so much and we look forward to seeing them again. He wrote a follow-up because I said, man, you've got to hear the passage I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on this week, and I just see all sorts of this. And he said, after reading the passage, I wanted to write a follow-up. This was this morning. Um. He says, after I read the previous email, we looked at the verse you were teaching from tomorrow, slash today, due to the time change, and Audrey said that the word longing had been running through her head. As Paul writes, we do long to see you again. And he goes on to say that, you know, some of the biggest pressures they face as African missionaries, uprooting their comfortable life here and placing it near the slums of Nairobi, Kenya, are the same that they would face here. He says there's just, there's just self-doubt not knowing if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, not knowing if you're making a, di- a, a, a difference, the frustration of not seeing the whole picture. And then he writes this, that's why we so appreciated, that's why we so appreciate NBC's encouragement and prayers. That's on us to be praying for them. Like Paul writes, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for our sake before God? And then catch this closing line. Know that we follow prayer requests on the city. And we lift you all up from across the world. It's our way of staying connected and helping to encourage you. Also, it's a comfort to us. Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to build you up, but know that I have a new lease on life. Now I can really live knowing that you're standing firm in the faith. Doesn't this build your faith, church, that this party we had a couple of years ago to say au revoir to the Hintons as they head off to Africa, that here they are still wrestling with truth, still wanting to do God's will, still living in that? Doesn't that build faith in you and courage in you? And here it is, a comfort and an encouragement to them as well. Can I just get um, maybe a couple of you to raise your hands just so I know that we have two people, that we could just pray for the Hintons right now as we, as we close our time?